Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As you can see, we'll be looking at three passages of Scripture this morning. First, this from 1 Peter 2.24, which we've already heard in our service. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. From Acts 13, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And finally, these words from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Father, we lift up our voices and cry out for healing as well, trusting in your Son Jesus for our restoration. We ask that you would open your word to us now, that your spirit would teach us from it. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. It is painful for me, of all people, to admit this, but sometimes I find that I'm a slow learner. There are things that everybody else is aware of, and then I come to them late and imagine that I've discovered them for the first time in human history. Uh, I've found myself sometimes working really hard to understand things that most people already know and take for granted. I comfort myself, though, with the thought sometimes that, that the greatest symbols are often hidden in plain sight. That the fact that you don't see them perhaps is a testament to the fact that you're so subtle and you're thinking that you're always looking beneath the surface that you can sometimes miss what's right there in front of your eyes. And humbling as it is, I want to share with you this morning one of those examples of me missing something that was right there before my eyes, or, or rather me puzzling over something that seemed to me that the authors of Scripture got a little bit wrong. Uh, things maybe if I had been writing these inspired books, I would have been a little more precise in my wording than they were. It's a passage that always puzzled me. It's not one of the ones we've just read. This is in Galatians 3, uh, verses 13 and 14. And some of you will recognize these words as I begin to read them. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, the phrase that I always got hung up on was the quotation, the citation he makes there, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When he writes those words, he's referencing something in Deuteronomy. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you, 
for an inheritance. So that instruction from Deuteronomy does help illuminate something. It explains why when Jesus is crucified, they don't leave him on the cross overnight. They didn't do that because when they put you up, they took you down and didn't leave you overnight because of the instructions of Deuteronomy 21. Not as a mercy to you, but because they didn't want to defile the land that the Lord had given them. That makes sense to me. That wasn't my problem. My problem, though, was that Paul applies that text from Deuteronomy to the crucifixion, which seemed to me not quite right, because it says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And in my mind, the cross was not a tree. And crucifixion wasn't the same as hanging. It seemed to me that there was quite a difference between those things. And you may be thinking, okay, yeah, but doesn't the Bible talk about the cross as a tree? Yeah, actually it does, and that's the problem. It's obvious, if you're familiar with Scripture, that this is a legitimate comparison to make, but for me it just didn't seem that way, because when I thought about the cross, I didn't picture it that way. For me, the cross had become a symbol, a sign, a kind of glorious abstraction, and I didn't think much about how it was made or what it actually was. But of course, the apostles did. And you see clearly in the words that they wrote, words that we've just read, that they made this connection. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, of course, he's speaking there of the glory of salvation, but specifically how salvation works. That righteousness of Christ, which is given to us. He bore our sins on the tree of the cross. When Paul is preaching in Antioch in Pisidia, he makes exactly this same point. It wasn't unique at all. That's the other passage that we looked at from Acts 13. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead." Now, in light of the fact that over the last few weeks, we've been specifically looking at this question of longing and fulfillment, it's striking that Paul talks here about the fulfillment of prophecy in the crucifixion of Jesus, that these men in ignorance fulfilled the prophecy. They were the instruments of the fulfillment, but they did it by condemning him. When he was removed from the cross, Paul describes that as being taken down from the tree. But again, to me, this just seemed like such a stretch. It was there in plain sight over and over again. Scripture would associate the cross with a tree, but it took me forever to recognize it. The cross was made from a tree. And to put you on the cross, to crucify you, they hang you on it. There's nothing subtle about that. It just took me a while to see the connection. 
And today, I want you to consider something that perhaps for you has always been obvious. I want you to consider the cross as a tree. For one thing, when we see the cross as a tree, suddenly the cross fits within a larger picture, a larger frame of symbols that we see throughout Scripture that depict the work that God is doing in us. Something begins to click into place that might not have fit before. Secondly, though, and more importantly, for our purposes, when you see the cross as a tree, you realize that at Christmas, God has placed a gift under the tree. And that's pretty exciting. At the heart of God's plan for humanity, there is a tree. If we study Scripture, one of the first things we're confronted with is the importance, strange as it sounds, of trees. Now, when we think about the cross as a tree, you might be worried that we're talking about the cross at all, because this is Christmas Day. Shouldn't we be talking about the birth of Jesus, not the crucifixion? Should we today confine our thoughts to the incarnation, the way that we have during Advent been trying on purpose not to just jump to Christmas? Like, is this one of those moments where we should give the incarnation a little bit of room to breathe and not just jump straight to the crucifixion? It's an interesting point to consider, but I'm not sure it's actually possible to be patient in that way, because the nativity of Jesus includes so much foreshadowing of the cross. In the nativity story, as we read it last night, as we have reflected on it throughout Advent, the cross is present there. From the very beginning, when Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 speaks of the rationale for Jesus' name, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. In his very naming, the work that he's come to do is embodied. In Luke chapter 2, when Mary hears that a sword will pierce her heart, there is a foreshadowing of the tragedy of the loss of the crucifixion that is to come. In other words, in the announcement of his birth, his mission is tied up in it. So I think it's okay for us as we consider his birth, to also consider why it is that he came, why it was that he had to be born. From the beginning to the end of God's plan, we find a tree standing there. At the heart of God's plan for humanity, there is a tree. In the garden, there was a tree. There were more than one. In the city, New Jerusalem, that is to come, there is a tree. In fact, it's the same as one of the trees present in the garden. Now, when we think of the garden, the tree that we all think of is, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that makes sense because that tree is paramount in the story of the human fall. But there is another tree in the garden, arguably a more important tree. That is the tree of life that is mentioned in Genesis 3.22. If you eat of the fruit of the tree of life, you live forever. That tree is present in the garden, but in the text that we read in Revelation 22, we find that same tree in the New Jerusalem as well. There beside the river of the water of life, there is on either side of that river the tree of life. We read that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so at the beginning of Scripture and at the end of Scripture, we see this tree standing a tree of life, a tree that sustains life, a tree that restores life. 
And in between, as we read Scripture, we encounter so many trees as well. The tree as a symbol is rich throughout Scripture. It suggests a healthy rootedness, a fruitfulness. It's a metaphor oftentimes for people and how people are meant to live. When you picture a tree that is healthy, that is bearing fruit, you imagine the the roots sinking down into the ground, pulling up nutrients into the tree and producing those uh, fruit, that living organism from root to branch is filled with life. In the metaphor, though, when Scripture uses the tree as a symbol, the nutrient is righteousness. It's righteousness that flowing through the organism produces life. In Psalm chapter 1, the righteous man is famously pictured as a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. It's righteousness that leads to life, just as unrighteousness leads to death. The righteous tree yields fruit, and the unrighteous tree is cursed, like the fig tree that did not produce figs. If you had entered into the Temple of Solomon and you had looked around and paid attention to the decorations, you would have seen a motif of trees. There were engravings on the walls, angels, palm trees, and open flowers, according to 1 Kings 6. All of these images would have portrayed for people, would have evoked the idea of the garden where human beings had communed with God and that that life-giving, face-to-face encounter. Jesus himself describes himself in in tree-like ways. He says that he is the vine and his people are branches. Paul, later in Romans 11, tells the Gentiles that they are like broken branches from wild olive trees that have been grafted into God's tree, have been made part of the tree, although they were not born into it. Once you start looking for symbols, pictures, images of trees throughout Scripture, you find a forest waiting for you there. You find the shadow of the tree everywhere. There's one tree in particular at Christmas time, though, that I'm always thinking of, and it is, of course, the Christmas tree. And I know that, that Christmas trees can be controversial, certainly in the church. There are people who believe Christmas trees are, are an entirely pagan invention. And yesterday, as I was using the vacuum to vacuum up dead pine needles, I was inclined to agree with that assessment. But historically speaking, you can't believe everything you hear about the pagan origin of the Christmas tree. In fact, it's a German Protestant thing. Martin Bootser, who was an, a uh, mentor of John Calvin's, he was the great reformer of Strasbourg, where Calvin fled during his exile, Bootser put up a Christmas tree in the Strasbourg Cathedral in 1539. It was actually much later, though, in 1849, that we owe our tradition to, thanks to Prince Albert, the German husband of Queen Victoria, who put up a Christmas tree in Windsor Castle. And then in the English-speaking world, everybody decided, hey, we should do the same thing. That's the history of the tree. Here's what I don't know. I don't know who the evil genius was who came up with the idea of putting gifts under the tree and then waiting to open them. But if you think about it, that person, I owe a lot of my childhood grief and trauma to that guy. Because that 
clever but insidious innovation was so profound. I mean, he was a genius, a dark genius. There is no better way to torture children than to put gifts under the tree all wrapped up and say, no, you can't have this, you must wait. I mean, think about that. If you can channel those memories, or for some of you, the the present reality of knowing, like there is a box, it is wrapped in pretty paper, and all I want to do is destroy that paper, because on that box is a tag with my name on it. This is a thing, a gift that belongs to me, and yet I cannot possess it. And so I wait patiently or impatiently for the moment when I can rip that beautiful paper off and possess the thing inside, even though oftentimes I know or have a pretty good idea what's in there. I can already picture it. That waiting, that suspense, it keeps me uh, perpetually thinking about that gift that is under the tree. I obsess over it. I desire it. I long for it. A gift under the tree focuses our attention on future fulfillment like nothing else. We talk about Advent leading up to Christmas as a time we long for fulfillment. That abstraction becomes very concrete if you just think about what it's like to wait in order to open your gifts. I realize for some of you, you've opened all your gifts, and so you can chuckle at this thought. For others, you still have gifts to unwrap, and it's torture even to talk about these things. But my point here is that God has placed a gift under the tree. It has your name on it. It is already yours, and yet you are longing to actually possess it, and you must wait for it. The cross is a tree, but a cursed tree. When you picture those trees at either end of the Bible, those are living organisms. The tree of life. In the garden, in the city, there is life. But in the middle, at the center of human history, where the cross stands, that tree is different. In contrast to the tree of life, the cross appears to be a tree of death. Unlike the tree of Psalm chapter 1, this tree is not planted by the river. It's not planted anywhere. It's been uprooted. Its branches have been lopped off. That symbol of life has been transformed into an instrument of death. When you reflect on what that tree The cross, as that tree really represents, you see the perversity of the cross as a symbol. Because that instrument of crucifixion is a symbol of life perverted, twisted, torn apart, refashioned in order to bring about death. It is a cursed tree, which is fitting, because death is the opposite of what we should be, just as that tree is the opposite of what a tree should be. That tree represents the curse of sin carried out upon us. In the same way that the tree of life is an instrument of blessing, that cross of death is an instrument of cursing. Or at least it appears to be at first. 
at least it is intended to be by Christ's enemies. The miracle of His incarnation, the miracle of His righteousness, of His sacrifice, of His resurrection, is that that fruitless tree of death has flowered into the tree of life. That it is the fruit of that tree which is for the healing of the nations. Every metaphor ultimately breaks down. No comparison is perfect. And this is, again, one of those comparisons that only goes so far as we think about a gift under the tree as a metaphor for God's gift to us. If you think about it, you'll think of all sorts of ways in which the metaphor doesn't apply. Because God's gift, while it is a lot like a gift under the tree, it's also a lot different than that as well. Especially now. Because the power of the gift under the tree has lost its uh, pull a little bit. Certainly, as a grown-up, the power of the gift under the tree speaks to me a little bit less than it did as a child. But I think for all of us, it speaks a little bit less because we live in an age of material abundance. For people who weren't accustomed to getting gifts, the idea of getting them at Christmas time must have been wondrous. The idea of, of all of these, these gifts under the tree would have been a sort of uh, unusual interruption of the ordinary course of events. But we are all accustomed to getting gifts constantly. We're surrounded by material things. We have so much of what we need and so much of what we want that one of the dilemmas of Christmas is figuring out what to get people as a gift. One of the common dilemmas of the gift guides is what do you get for the person who has everything? It's a bigger problem now, perhaps, than it's ever been before. Spiritually speaking, too, it often seems as if this is the situation we find ourselves in. How do we share the gospel? How do we share the gift of God's grace with people who have everything, who have no sense of their need for it? And yet, I think, even in our circumstances, even in our culture, the idea of a gift under the tree can change things. Because once there is a gift under the tree, you can redirect the expectation for stuff. I don't know if you've noticed this in your families, but it's an interesting thing that I've noticed that for a season, suddenly it's possible to suspend our ordinary consumer instincts and instead of buying whatever we want whenever we want it, telling ourselves we have to wait for Christmas because maybe, just maybe, what we want is already under the tree and you wouldn't want to get two of them. And so even now, it's possible to use this, this idea to slow down that ordinary course of acquisition to focus ourselves to tell us we have to wait and find out what's under the tree. Even in an age of abundance, there's still something magical about waiting for a mystery to be revealed. So we discipline ourselves for a season to enjoy that thrill of anticipation, even if we already know what's inside the box. But oftentimes, our sense of contentment, our sense that that we could indulge in a little bit of anticipation just for fun, even though we don't really have any question about what's waiting for us, there really is no mystery, that sense conceals something, conceals, let's call it um, an ignorance. 
it conceals, coming full circle, a failure to recognize what is hidden in plain sight. We imagine spiritually that we are people who have everything. That we are people that when we hear of God's grace, aren't sure that that's something we actually need. But in that, we are deceiving ourselves. Our very abundance is deceptive. We have a lot of one kind of thing, but it's not the right kind of thing. Jesus once told Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary to us. He might say, you're enthralled and desirous of many things, but one thing is necessary, and it is the thing that you lack. Our material abundance conceals our spiritual impoverishments. We sang last night that dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. And as you sang those words, maybe you tried in your mind to think of who the poor are, to send up a little prayer for the poor, because they're out there somewhere, hopelessly praying to God those precious prayers, never imagining that we are them. Because we don't think of ourselves as impoverished, because materially we're not. But spiritually, all too often we are. We are surrounded by trees and they are loaded with gifts, but there is only one gift that we need and it comes only from God and it's found only under His tree. What is that gift? It is the gift that every moment in this service has proclaimed to you. The gift that God has placed under the tree of the cross is Christ's righteousness. That's the gift. The righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that can restore us to communion with God and hence to life itself. Jesus Christ, His righteousness, that is God's gift to you. It's under the shadow of the cross that that gift of righteousness waits. And all who receive that gift receive life. And it is there waiting. And your name is on it. It is yours. Jesus says to you, take it and live. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.